Just as Scripture teaches a general, gracious will of God for the salvation of all men, so also it certainly teaches God's special election of individuals to salvation. The eternal election of God is the cause of faith in the elect. However, election did not happen in view of the faith of the elect. One may ask, can you make sense of that for yourself? What then? God wants to save all, but again, he has elected only a few who alone are saved? No, I can't make sense of that for myself. However, has God revealed his truth to us so that we should make sense of it for ourselves? No, exactly the opposite. We believe it as he has revealed it to us. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, Adam Kuntz, to continue our discussion of the election controversy. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well. How are you guys? Well, we're broadcasting, or excuse me, recording rather, from our safe and disinfected bunkers, I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> Correct. What's the weather like in Vault, uh, Vault Fort Wayne? Uh, well, all I can see is concrete all around me on every side, but presumably if one were to go outside, it's actually relatively sunny and breezy. The birds are coming back to northern Indiana, so it, it sounds very nice outside, but all of that is just hypothetical in actual fact. I live in a bunker and I've been eating pork and beans for roughly two weeks. <laughs> I went in early. I've actually recorded all of the past six months episode from an abandoned <laughs> silo. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were, you were, you were actually in the bunker before the first guy checked into a hospital in Wuhan. That's so. right. Before, the, yeah. before the, before the windows broke at the Wuhan virus lab, I was already hunkered down. <laughs> Zolan, how are you? I'll do you one better. My entire state is a bunker since I'm so isolated, so I can actually see the sky. No, things are... You don't even need an air exchanger up there. No, things are, are real going real well here, and uh, it's actually kind of warm today, so I don't even know what to do with that information. You know, gets it gets too warm around here. It just gets distressing, so... You have to start shedding layers. It's... Just weird. Right. You rise from your <laughs> buffalo wallow. <laughs> For your exactly. annual shearing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and bath. You guys but might not know this, point. but the natives used to use every piece of the Zelwyn uh, when they would harvest <laughs> the true story. Right. right. White man cannot compete uh, with that kind of environmental friendliness. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, so... Today, we're going to address the question on everyone's mind who's listening, uh, which is, of course, hey, what happened to the doctrine of election in Lutheranism after the age of orthodoxy? Yeah, no, I mean, here, come here to do, I suppose. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, why? Like, there is no better time. You, you've probably been, you know, seeing uh, tweets, maybe maybe memes about all the things that were accomplished during quarantine. You know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear. So uh, here we are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's at home. Every, 
Everybody's at home, so every angry Lutheran can listen to this and leave horrible comments on our social media pages. And we thank you for it. Right, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, it's okay. We promise. We'll get back to the weird episode soon enough. We know what you want, folks. We're going to get there soon, fam. So, we did leave the discussion off (laughs) with the Age of Orthodoxy. From there, we're going to actually move up into the 19th century when the election controversy proper kicks off. So, Adam, do you want to start things off here? Yeah. So, to speak in sort of, you know, epidemiological terms, there is like dormancy. There's a long period of dormancy for a lot of doctrinal assertions that are classic in Lutheranism because the age of orthodoxy is sort of subsumed by vastly different emphases, if not necessarily doctrines in pietism. But in the United States, there's another layer on top of that, which is the sort of indifference to doctrine among many American Lutherans prior to, you know, that maybe the, the second quarter of the 19th century. So the, the confessional revival in worldwide Lutheranism that begins, especially with the 300th commemoration of the 95 Theses in 1817, that kicks off a time period that's going to lead to much greater interest in early Lutheranism and in Lutheran orthodoxy. And, and that actually happens in the United States, it happens nationwide. But that is part of the reason why election isn't really debated with any breadth or intensity in the period between, let's say, roughly the end of the 17th century and the middle of the 19th century. Do you have anything that you want to kind of add to that, Z? Or? Yeah, I mean, I always kind of find it humorous when we're talking about this time period. You know, we and you're absolutely right, you know, the different emphases of pietism kind of subsume some of these things. But it's like we miss this gigantic elephant in the room in the world at the same time of the Enlightenment, (laughs) as if that had nothing to do with it, but it was rather just the pietists who came in and kind of wrecked everything. So, I mean, (laughs) I mean, the doctrinal discussions in general kind of become passe because of the influence of the Enlightenment. And so it's not a surprise that these questions go dormant. That's all I would really add. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And in the case of American Lutheranism, what we might call rationalism in a church context, sort of the fruit of the Enlightenment, is not thoroughly victorious in American Lutheranism, you know, in, let's say, the very early American Republic, but it is, it's fairly prevalent. And so you kind of have to see the founding of the Gettysburg Seminary and a figure like Samuel Simon Schmucker as actually a kind of rightward move in, let's say, political theological terms toward greater interest in doctrine. You know, Schmucker actually produces a systematic theology. So in that sense, he's an improvement, I suppose, but he's not interested necessarily in Lutheran orthodoxy the way later folks and especially Midwestern Lutherans will be. Right. Right. I mean, just and just as another way of kind of emphasizing what the what the Enlightenment is doing, of course, you have Kant's fa- uh, famous dictum of, you know, Cypera Aude, you know, dare to be wise, you know, cast off these strings which are holding you on to your mother and think for yourself. So, yeah, I mean, it, it right. really all does kind of go underground for a while. So when we do finally see the interest coming back, though, in these questions, though, Adam, where is it coming from? You know, why why do we pick up the election controversy all over again. It comes back because of a thoroughgoing interest in 
Lutheran confessional theology. So both the confessions and then their outworking in the theological tradition that follows it, which is orthodoxy. And that is general to pretty much any confessional group of any kind in world Lutheranism in the 19th century. That is going to go in very different directions. So when the election controversy formally kicks off, that's usually dated to a series of essays that Walther publishes in De Lutheraner in the beginning in the 1860s and extending into the 1870s. There's an undated set that assert basically the same thing in the middle of the 1850s. So you pick. But he he begins to deliver a series of essays before the Western District of the Synod, which is like centered on Missouri functionally at the time. In 1877, he doesn't really finish that series of theses until 1879 for a variety of reasons. But it's in there. What he's trying to articulate is that the doctrine of the Lutheran Church alone gives all glory to God. And he'll take different doctrinal topics up in the course of doing that. And predestination is one of those things. But it's important to recognize that roughly 20 years before he does that, the Iowa Synod, with whom we disagree explicitly on the ministry and millennialism and the nature of doctrine and thinking about open questions, the Iowa Synod is also, even though they're opposed to Missouri, very interested in Lutheran orthodoxy and are openly asserting the intuitu fide in view of faith position we outlined in the last episode. Hmm. Complicating yeah. that, and then I'll, I'll stop, is that in, in our own publications in the 1850s, such eminent Missourians as Wilhelm Seeler, one of the founding fathers of Synod, asserts a position agreeing with intuitu fide. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, he will later he will later recant and say, oh, I was wrong. But it's important to say that like in the 1850s, even though we openly disagree with Iowa and, and the Buffalo Synod on something like the ministry, this is not really locked down. And everyone is just sort of generically interested in Lutheran orthodoxy, especially among the younger synods that are part of sort of the second wave of German immigration. So it's it's up for grabs in the sense that the the nature of what it means to believe in the election of grace is not locked down in American Lutheranism. Yeah, it's it's important that you bring up that kind of early disagreement even in Missouri because I think because wasn't it Seeler wrote in eighteen fifty five, right? And then Yeah, that's right. And then I think Feuerbringer also bring uh, brings in a series of articles kind of arguing the same thing a little bit later. But then you you, you kind of get this anonymous <laughs> yes. article in eighteen fifty eight on the formula election, which is the first one that openly disagrees with this. And maybe this is Walther's way of, and I, I'll get your reaction to this, is this Walther publishing anonymously as a way of addressing the issue, but not trying to rock the boat with his cohorts, with Seeler and Feuerbringer? Yes. No, yeah, no, that's a great point. Because one of the things to pay attention to are the personalities involved and how they handle one another. Mm -hmm. So one of the distinctions between what happens in the 1850s and then what happens 20 years later is that in the 1850s, the disagreements, even in Walther's own publications, you know, think about it. That I mean, he, he sees everything that Synod publishes, right? Right, right. The disagreements are handled very much in-house. 
very right. much in-house. And there is no attempt to impugn the way that someone said something. There are disagreements on substance, but they don't go after each other. And they also don't try to kind of attack each other explicitly. That's going to be very different from how things shake out in the 1870s and 1880s. Because Missouri itself is is officially, but crucially not, you know, practically, it's officially unified on the nature of election. That is that it does not have any cause relative to human faith. It's simply the will of God and the merit of Christ are the causes of election. It's it's officially unified when the election controversy occurs because Walther has is going public with all this and and no one is explicitly protesting until they are which we can talk about in a second but yeah the the way that this is handled beforehand is much gentler than the way that it shakes out later hmm hmm what do you think the reasoning for that was was it just they're they're willing to be more charitable they're willing to be gentler as you say or is it a case of it just hasn't yeah. blown open yet. And so, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, no, that's it. I mean, that is a great question because I think that it concerns like when you're handling doctrine and doctrinal disagreement in the church, how are you thinking about this? And I don't, I think it's evident if you look at the way that they talk, that they don't have a sort of like personal prime directive to just be nice. Mm-hmm. That's not how they handle things. But where the person with whom they disagree on a doctrine or a practice is someone that they actually know or would encounter or whatever there, they do handle things in a much less, let's say destructive way. Right. So they don't go in like guns blazing. And I think that that partly explains why when you get to what's actually called capital E capital C, the election controversy in the 1870s and eighties, Walther's essays are pastoral conference essays. They're not intended to be controversial. Like they're clear mm-hmm. and they're doctrinally rich, but they're not intended to address controverted matters. As if 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 you and I, Zelwyn, said, Oh, we have a disagreement on something, why don't we record five podcast episodes where we're yelling at each other? You know what I mean? Like there's no we're not we're not gonna do that, you know? And and you and I do have a difference on, you know, the existence of certain cryptids, probably. <laughs> But, you know, uh, that, that's it. Right. But we're not we're not going to record episodes yelling at each other. Right. We're just right. not going to do that. So so I think that the way that 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 it's handled within the Missouri Senate in the 1850s, it's remarkable because the disagreements are right out there in print. But no one even remembers that that occurred. And it's not even called anything. It's not called like the first election controversy <laughs> because nobody even knows how they settled it. Right. So what, what do you think changes in, in the 20 years? What, wh- why does the attitude shift? No, it's, it, that, it, it's such a good question. One, I think there's two big things. One is the person of Friedrich Schmidt, who I want to go into in a second. That's kind of, I think, more important than the other factor, which is the fact that there's simply everything is bigger. Because by the late 1870s and early 1880s, they have formed the Synodical Conference, And they specifically have brought in something that is quite large and powerful and at least partly English speaking, which is the Ohio Synod. So that is a counterweight to Missouri in voting at the Synodical Conference and in theological publication. 
the like of which has not existed in the Midwest before. Hmm. Okay. So the existence of the Ohio Synod and the fact that they become pretty united in defense of election in Tua Fide is really important because what you'll see throughout the controversy is that, and we'll talk about this later when we talk about how the opponents handled stuff, is like if somebody doesn't like something in Missouri, well, he can always get a call to an Ohio Synod church. Or in one case, from the Missouri Synod's prep school in Fort Wayne to the Ohio Synod Seminary in Columbus. So they have institutional weight and they publish in German and in English. And that's just a counterbalance to Walther that really doesn't exist elsewhere in the Synodical Conference. Hmm. So that's that's its own thing. The other, the other thing to talk about is the person of Frederick Schmidt, who is a really, in a way, a very remarkable man. So he is technically at the St. Louis Seminary, but he's there as the Norwegian synods. That's part of the Synodical Conference, self-explanatory who it is. But you'll <laughs> notice that his name is not Norwegian. He gets the job because he encounters, I think, Hermann Amberg Preuss. And Hermann Amberg Preuss is shocked to find out this guy named Friedrich Schmidt speaks fluent Norwegian. I don't really know how or why <laughs> he got to do that. But the guy's kind of a, he's kind of a, I mean, it's not really a skill people have, generally speaking. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, all love to Norwegians, great people, but not a lot of people know Norwegian. To <laughs> be honest, I didn't, I didn't even know they, I didn't even know they spoke. I thought they just sort of you know, blinked at each other and made clicking yeah. sounds. I didn't know. It's like, the, that's, the, well, that's most of it. That's most it's of the it. Swedish chef on the Muppets, but with less vocalization. So. <laughs> right. Well, because he's not showy and arrogant as, as the Swedes are, you know, so. Exactly. So Schmidt, Schmidt speaks Norwegian. And so he gets the job at the St. Louis seminary because the Norwegians, it was, different ethnic synods would send their people to different Missouri synod seminaries. So all the Finns went to Springfield and the Norwegians went to St. Louis. So he is teaching there. So you have to think about it. He's Walther's colleague. And the faculty is not like 50 people like St. Louis in 1985 or something. I mean, it's like, it's tiny. He sees this guy every day, but he kind of hates him eventually. And that is tracked by most people. And some of this is oral tradition, but, you know, make of it what you will, to the fact that he doesn't get the job as the Missouri Synod's English professor at St. Louis. So this is kind of confusing. He wouldn't move, but he would have a totally different job at the same institution. And he doesn't get that job. I can't remember who does, but he doesn't get it. And he is, in letters that we do have, pretty openly angry about it. So, okay. I mean, you know, I mean, like you can, like you laugh, but then if you learn enough church history, you learn that like every single thing in the church has to do not only with the ideas, but also, and especially with the people. And so Schmidt is a very, he's, he's a very, you may imagine from somebody who is a native German speaker, but speaks beautiful English and Norwegian. He's really good at expressing himself and he's opposed to Walther. Hmm. So there is an intermediate period, and we'll kind of have to leave this for the next segment, but there is an intermediate period after Walther has begun to express himself publicly in 77 and 79, where Schmidt is defending Walther to other Norwegians. Norwegians, let's not genetically in this case, but ecclesiastic Norwegians, <laughs> right? But a, a real genetic and ecclesiastic Norwegian named Ole Asperheim, 
says Walther is a Calvinist and Schmidt writes to him and says, you know, I, I think, you know, I think he's just expressed himself too strongly. So you also have the issue here of a, of a, a massive personality like Walther encountering church people that he's now related to through the synodical conference who don't personally know him and don't personally owe him any allegiance. Hmm. And so we're not really going to be talking in the next couple of segments about, oh, is election in view of faith? No, it's not. We kind of settled that in the last episode, I, I, I should hope. But I do want to talk about how both the supporters of Walther, who are in various synods, but mostly in Missouri and Wisconsin and, and the Norwegians, and then how opponents of Walther, some in Missouri, some in Wisconsin, the vast majority in Ohio, uh, react to this. Right. Well, hey, we got to take our first break. I got to stop you right there. We'll be back with a lot more Schmidt right after this. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, and we are discussing the election controversy. So, Walther, when we last left him, has now been put on the defensive. How does CFW Walther respond to these attacks, and what sort of, what sort of tactic does he use? Adam? Yeah, he, he responds by, in 1879, trying to clarify what he means and devoting further attention to the article on predestination. That is successful in clarifying for his supporters what their teaching is. So, for instance, the Missouri Synod is accused by, by Schmidt eventually, but certainly by people outside the Synod, of being Calvinistic, a term that's really going to stick in their craw. And so Walther wants to articulate very clearly, specifically, the relationship between why Calvinism is wrong and how what he's saying is not Calvinistic. The, the underlying issue here is eventually not just going to be, what do we mean by foreknow for in Romans 8.29, which will be a place to which the Missouri Synod and others devote a lot of reflection. What does it mean that God foreknew those whom he would justify? But also, the issue becomes, what is the nature, how are justification and election related to each other? The quote with which I began the episode is from the early 1880s. They're from two different essays by the Wisconsin Synod's leading theologian, Adolf Heinecke. You can, you can still get his 
his evangelical Lutheran dogmatics, which are really well written, very clear there in English. But he criticizes not Walther's teaching, but Walther's clarity of expression. That that to me is a very interesting criticism, and I think he's on target, at least with 1877, because the issue is not so much that what Walther was saying at any point along the line was wrong. I think he is the writer back in the 1850s of those anonymous, quote unquote, anonymous statements on election. And he's trying to correct what he sees as an error within his own church body at that point. But he is very determinate and doesn't really pick up the questions that come from the Ohio Synod and others in the 1870s and 1880s. So their concerns are about, well, why then are some saved and not others? And Walther's contention that the reason that some are saved is solely because of God's election is unsatisfying to people who want to, as it were, harmonize all the teachings of Scripture under some kind of rubric. And I think that the quote that we started with from Heineke gets at the heart of that because he says, am I supposed to understand, to grasp how everything that the Bible reveals to me is related to each other? Am I supposed to be able to harmonize it all somehow under a term that's going to be used by a bunch of different people? And you see this throughout Franz Pieper's dogmatics precisely for this reason. They'll say that there's some kind of Schriftganze, that is, entirety of scripture, some overarching thing that makes sense of the whole Bible. And if you just have that overarching thing, then you can see how everything fits together. And Heineke's going to say very clearly, and Walther will eventually, I think, also get there, that, look, we believe things simply because the Bible says them, not because we understand how they all fit together and when we're done reading are left with no questions, no unanswerable questions. So I think Walther, Walther reacts personally by attempting to clarify himself, but I think it is significant really for anybody who talks or writes in public that just because you're becoming clearer and you're becoming better at expressing yourself doesn't mean that people are appeased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's that's a fair point, because even even sometimes when we think we're being clear on our own podcast, you know, it's not always heard as being clear. <laughs> or we know when when right. we're trying to make some sort of point like in Bible class or something and you think you're making your point clearly, it might not really be answering the question that was that was being asked either. So, I mean, yeah, this is certainly something that as even as pastors, we struggle with. Right, Willie? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's communication, memory, everything can fail us and does fail us fairly often. That's why we might need to exercise a little bit more charity when reading the statements of others or even hearing some of the things that they say. I mean, if something's particularly egregious, obviously, that's a problem. But we are pretty predisposed toward reading the worst construction on anything that we can. And I understand it. It's the absolute state of discourse. But, in, you know, in, in the current year, <laughs> um, you know, and at the same time, though, you know, we want to be very careful in how we speak. And really, clarity, although it sounds odd to say this, clarity is what we strive for here, which is why we often take the long way around in order to explain something because you can say something very concisely. You can do your Twitter theology if you want to, and that still might not be very clear and it might be dangerous because of that. And, and so that's what we run into though. Um, Even on the, the 
confessional side of things, people want these little bite-sized bits of theology or these little pithy sayings, and that doesn't lend itself very well to clarity. It leads itself to distortion, and it really helps entrench these various camps that we have under our big umbrella, to be quite honest. Do you think that the language barrier, Adam, was also a a factor in this? I mean, I know the Synodical Conference is dealing with English-speaking and German-speaking groups, and I don't believe Walther ever had a real good command of English, if I remember correctly. Or if he did, he didn't use it. So, I mean, was that also at work here? Yeah, so I, I think Walther's English capacity was was passively good. He could read, he could understand. There's almost no situation in his daily life, and this is maybe just a reflection on American culture in the 19th century, he didn't have to use English practically. Hold on, no, 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 no. It's not a, no, that's regional culture, regional American culture in the 19th century. Let's uh, let's be fair here. He, he, it's 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 the culture of the county he's in and his and his particular vocation. He's a he's a he's around Germans all the time. So it's not like you're going to be in South Carolina in 1850 and just everybody's sprechen Sie Deutsch. It's just not that's not what's going down. But he yeah he, he's in a German synod. In, in towns filled with German immigrants, so it's very handy, and he can and he can sort of escape that way. We we see that in pockets of the United States today with with Spanish, for example. Uh, there are there are places in the United States, even in the Midwest now, where you could live reasonably easy without a great grasp of English. And uh, I'll just let that I'll just let that I'll just let that statement float. And here I thought you were going to say like groups of muzzies or something. But and then make, well, no, make no, the no, claim no. that he knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose I could have used Dearborn as an example too, or Somalis, yeah. or whatever. Uh, these these pockets, <laughs> these, we'll call right, them right. We'll say or cells, if you will. <laughs> so sorry, Adam. I just wanted uh, to I just wanted to remind you know we want to paint the best portrait of 19th century America as we can. Yeah, so he uh, is, he's he's not no he's not debating anybody in English. He's not he's not writing in English. I think one of an interesting twist on this though is that the Ohio Synod is divided relatively evenly between what they call their English district and then what doesn't have a name, which tells you what their kind of default is, and that's the German speakers. And it's the English part of the Ohio Synod, especially the uh, Matthias Loy who is born in Pennsylvania and then operates in Ohio that actually push for greater closeness to the Missouri Synod. So one of the ironies that that occurs here is that the English speaking confessional Lutherans, I'm using that term kind of historically, not evaluating them on every point of doctrine, but people like Loy, the English speaking folks in the Ohio Synod and the general council, which is largely Pennsylvania at the time, C.P. Croth, they're actually more in favor of Walther, even though he's not really reaching out to them, at least linguistically, prior to this controversy. So I, I think language is an issue. It's also an issue with the Norwegians, who are by and large within the Norwegian Synod supportive of uh, the what comes to be the Synodical Conference position on election. But the Norwegians who are not within the Synodical Conference, which I believe is most of them, even at this point, are going to ally themselves very strongly with someone like F.A. Schmidt, who can communicate with them 
and also assuages their doubts about the love of the gospel among the Missourians. I mean, one of the things that you're dealing with when you think about perceptions of Missouri, maybe even today, is that even if Missouri is not as <laughs> is not as monolithic as people outside the Missouri Synod think, and we talked about earlier their disagreements about election and, and how that was probably handled kind of behind closed doors, even if Missouri is not as monolithic as its opponents think, they are happy to find any pretext to find the Missouri Synod to be monolithic and kind of grumpy. <laughs> and uh, what, <laughs> you know, so, so one, of, one, of, one of the issues that comes up is that there's sort of the personal fallout. Walter has to express himself more clearly. The Wisconsin Synod tries to be super clear in how it expresses itself, especially with Hanukkah. But another thing that, that comes up is how the Missouri Synod begins to feel embattled. And it, that, that sense of being embattled, I, I don't know if it ever necessarily goes away, but there is a point at which they have these meetings of the Synodical Conference, and the delegates from the Missouri Synod, which is a very large number of men, are specifically instructed that they are not to seat themselves in assembly with people or groups who have publicly accused the Missouri Synod of being Calvinistic. <laughs> who, who you're sitting with at your lunch hour? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is. I mean, what what you find, I think, is I want to talk about media probably in the next section because it's really important for the opponents. But even within the Missouri Synod, the effect that media has on people is, I think, enormous because it creates a sense of alienation and hostility that wouldn't have existed if they had gone on handling things face to face. No, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, because you certainly see that even even in our day dealing with, you know, media issues, you know, whatever the truth of of what whatever's going on right now, this sense of something being out there and the sense of embattlement that can come from that is going to drive you to, well, I mean, to treat your opponents as only that rather than as people with faces. Right, right, exactly. And then when you finally see each other, this is a person that, yeah, you worked with in the past, you knew him. I mean, in, in the case of Schmidt, this is a guy who's sort of sharing his daily bread with the people that he ends up attacking. And we can talk later about how. But when they come to deal with each other, they're now dealing with each other as kind of hardened personalities and hardened positions. Because I, I, I think that one difference between media and face-to-face is not that media is per se evil, but it is per se distanced. Right. You know, I think about the the difference that that John talks about in his second and third letters about how you know he has many things to write, but there's simply something I don't know inadequate about writing. And so, what he wants to do is handle the thing face to face. I think maybe there's a sense of there, there's definitely a sense of greater required honesty face to face you simply can't get away with saying certain things but there's also a necessary charity when you're face to face because the person is right there to respond to you whereas when you're doing it through whatever medium i mean when i say media we're really talking about you know newsprint in <laughs> in the 19th century we're not talking about you know obviously like or or telegrams maybe at the most you know we're not talking about 
electronic media. But you're, the same issues of distance are there, even though the reaction times are a lot slower. Oh, I would I would be so willing to say that this is true even of our electronic media because yes we have you know our Star Trek futuristic kind of holograms and stuff like that in in Skype and whatnot but even then there's always this this distance that is just kind of inherently there and as much as we try to say that you know video uh, calling for example brings us closer together you can't ever get past the fact that you're dealing with someone through the medium of something else rather than face to face i mean even this podcast for crying out right. loud you know i enjoy it immensely and i'm glad we have these conversations but it's just not the same as if we were all in the same room it just can't be right right yeah yeah and i i, I think that this is so, i mean this is something to just to consider I mean, it, obviously, especially at this time, because the the idea that something is a replacement is not the same thing as saying, well, it gets it gets a certain part of the job done. I mean, right. listening to a sermon or watching a sermon is very different from being there in the flesh. There are just dynamics that that are present when physical presence is there that are not there, even if the person is communicating really well over video or in print or whatever the medium is. I'm sure you guys have experienced it. You know, there there is a tremendous difference between, like with preaching, for example, between preaching to an empty room when you're practicing something and actually getting up into the pulpit on Sunday morning. There's that, that face-to-face presence just cannot be replaced. And there's a certain energy that comes with being with other people that you just can't, you can't do the same over, you know, over a digital medium. So yeah, I mean, I do think that you're you're onto something by saying that part of the problem, if not a great deal of the problem going on with the election controversy right now is this kind of inherent distance and this distancing, this othering, if you will, that is going on between otherwise, you know, groups which might otherwise be on the same page. Right. I think a longer term issue that's going to come out of this is that for the guys who will eventually compose the what comes to be called the Wawatosa theology, they are all in seminary at the very time when these things have become controversial. Because there's this, there's this interlude when Wisconsin is not running its own seminary, and John Philip Kaler, August Pieper, and John Schaller, who's at, Schaller's actually a Missourian, his dad is a, is a professor at St. Louis, are all at the St. Louis Seminary together. And I think that one of the longer term effects of this controversy within certainly that portion of the Synodical Conference is to think really hard about how the opponents sounded. Because one thing that the opponents of Walther do have on their side is a much stronger appeal to the age of Lutheran orthodoxy. Sure. Now, Walther and especially his colleague, George Stuckart, are going to dig into the Bible. And Stuckart has a marvelous essay on Romans 8.29 that defines foreknowledge very much in accord with the, the formula of Concord, distinguishing foreknowledge from the election of grace. The fact that God foreknows something does not mean that he is actively willing it. That is one of the key distinctions between the scriptural teaching on predestination and then double predestination on the other hand. So they're going to do that. But I think one of the things that Wauwatosa realizes, and I think 
often the things that occur when you are a young man end up impacting your development the rest of your life, they realize appealing simply to the fact that something is old or that it is from the fathers, whatever group of fathers you're using, is insufficient for orthodoxy. That orthodoxy has to be defined first biblically and then can be looked at in terms of church history. But that's that's huge for that entire group of people who are going to have such an influence generations after the thing has been resolved. Kaler himself would actually go on to make this very point, you know, from lessons learned in this debate with the election controversy. I mean, you know, even just this kind of charity, which we should have towards our opponents, uh, which he would experience, you know, firsthand in the course of the Bites controversy and, and all in the fallout that came with that and which would go on to shape, you know, the Wisconsin Synod as well as as the Protestant conference. But I mean, this idea of just letting your opponents speak for themselves and understanding them in the way that they want to be understood is a key point that I think is another way that would come that would come out of this controversy. And speaking of which, Zell, when, when are we going to do that whole episode on the Bites paper? I'm waiting. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> well, all right. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly after this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of a word fitly spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. We're talking about the election controversy. Now, we talked a little bit about media last segment, and I'd like to continue that because it's very interesting. Adam, how was media used uh, specifically by some of these men? So back in the day, you couldn't just start a blog, but you could start a newspaper, strangely enough. (laughs) 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 So... So that is what Friedrich Schmidt did. Once he becomes theologically and personally alienated from the Missouri Synod, he starts a newspaper called Altes und Neues. So it's in German. It means old things and new things. And it's meant to recall the fact that he has history on his side. Are we just going to ignore that that sounds like a newspaper of just classified ads? Right. Well, it sounds it sounds like it's sort of like a like a potpourri newspaper. So sort of like you know, <laughs> it, gossip like the about par- town, the, the, par- the parade magazine of the nineteenth right, century. Right. 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 Yeah. Reader's <laughs> Digest type stuff. No, but it's um, it's uh, what he's going to do in there is you know, in in somewhat classic fashion, classic crank fashion. Most of the material is going to be produced by him. 
you know, which is, you know, I mean, like, you know, I, th- I mean, we, I think I think we once tried to start a blog and we produced all the materials. So, I mean, like, you know, I mean, pot calling kettle black here. But I, and that's what you have to do when you're starting. So but he's what he's really effective in doing is is providing a voice within German speaking Lutheranism that is decisively opposed. And that is going to connect with the Ohio Synod. So the Ohio Synod is going to be sympathetic to him to the extent that Matthias Loy and others at their seminary in Columbus who are fully bilingual, right? I mean, so Matthias Loy is born in Western Pennsylvania. So he's Pennsylvania German, but they're English speaking there, sort of like a Gerberding of many episodes ago. And so Loy is totally bilingual and they're translating stuff. So what's interesting here is Walther is fighting in his own language. In Norwegian, he's being defended by some, but decried by most. And then in English, he doesn't really have a voice. And the Missouri Synod itself doesn't really have a voice. And the English Synod, which does exist and is part of the Synodical Conference, is small and concentrated in the Ozarks. And so they're not really taking part in the controversy. So Walther is fighting in one language and losing in two others. Mm-hmm. And, and so for the media environment, Schmidt has both the capacity to fight in Walther's own sphere, which is German speaking Midwestern Lutheranism. But he also has the capacity because of his contacts to just totally saturate a totally different media market, which also concerns pretty much all Eastern Lutherans uh, in both North and South who are at this point almost entirely English speaking. Hmm. And Schmidt really brings his A game to this. (laughs) (laughs) He does. Well, I mean, I think I think one of the ironies of the controversy on a personal level is that Schmidt is in just sort of a human sense. I don't agree with his doctrine, but in a human sense, he's an enormously talented man. This is kind of a ongoing problem with Missouri St. Louis Seminary is that they'll get somebody who's really talented. They get an Egyptologist and he wants to leave. They get a good dogmatician in Preuss with two S's and he becomes Roman Catholic because he sees a blood, blood red sun in the sky. I mean, they just can't, they just can't (laughs) win. They'll, they'll get a good guy, but then the good guy will somehow, he'll either perceive his alienation. I mean, I think there is a group dynamic thing going on here. If the guy is talented, it, his alienation from the group may in and of itself drive him into opposition, even though, as as I mentioned with, you know, Schmidt trying to explain Walther to Norwegians, he's initially sympathetic to Walther, even though he says, yeah, he expresses himself too absolutely. But, you know, he's not wrong. Eventually, all of Schmidt's talents he takes with him out of the Missouri Synod and then against the Missouri Synod. Well, you know, even even with the talents which they have otherwise than men like Wham, and you see how his memory is remembered and the years gone by. So maybe maybe the problem is his group dynamics and talent. You know, maybe that is maybe you're on to something there, Adam. Yeah, I mean, it, it might be a perennial problem. I mean, Altiso Neues only gets published for, I think, less than a decade. I think it's I think it's done by the middle of the 1880s. But even so, the controversy does sort of die down in being you know, in front of people's eyes, once the guy who has, you know, kind of at this point built his career around this controversy is gone. Right. So, 
So group dynamics do change, but I think there is always maybe I, I, there, there's I, there's probably a necessary at least attention, you know, to choose a, a kind of a stupid word. There, there's at least attention, if not a conflict, between individual talents and group dynamics and also group needs, right? So what does the group, let's say, of the Synodical Conference before Ohio leaves, what does the group need? Well, the group needs the capacity to calmly and clearly discuss the issue. It, it might be the case that that's impossible in any group that Walther is in. <laughs> Because, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> because and, and, and I think the reason is that Walther is Walther is to his supporters so important as a kind of I mean, the the only the only analog is George Washington. Sure. You know, in in, in, in American history. And so so everyone's either going to claim him or if you turn against him, you know, you get these weird episodes in early American history that no one remembers, like James Wilkinson tried to betray the entire United States. Aaron Burr tried to betray the entire United <laughs> States. The XYZ affair is over. Did someone betray the entire United States? You know, and so so the, the reason I, I, I think that when you have something that's kind of a non-negotiable and you get you get not just principles or or documents or doctrines in the church's case that are non-negotiable but you also end up getting for one reason or another personalities that are non-negotiable right walther is a non-negotiable person for the missouri synod and so there are people in the missouri synod that disagree with walther there are even people strangely enough within the wisconsin synod which is much smaller and has at this point much healthier group dynamics than the than Missouri does because they they're not really doing anything via print, but those disagreements mean that if you're in Missouri or Wisconsin, you leave right. because you don't agree with Missouri and Wisconsin, and it's clear that you need to leave. And it's actually fairly easy because all of these synods that we're talking about, unlike Eastern Lutherans, are congregationalists at their heart. So the congregation and her pastor who disagree can leave. It's it's honestly not that big of a deal. Hmm. And you're not losing anything. There's no there's no health plan. There's no there's there's almost nothing big tying you together except educational institutions. And hmm. you can obviously send your people to different institutions if you need a different seminary, a different college, whatever. There's nothing else tying you together. The stakes are fairly low organizationally. So if if you're consuming different media and you change your mind and your congregation changes its mind, or you change your mind and the congregation doesn't, peaceful separation is fairly easy to achieve at this point in, in, in everyone's history. Yeah, compared to now, for example, where we are kind of held together by the institutions that we have created over time. And as a result, when these disagreements still do occur, you know, the, the, the group dynamics remain, but the outlets are no longer there. And so we're kind of caught in this pressure cooker, as it were, that I think kind of uh, highlights the the difficulties that we have today. Yeah, and and in it, I mean, in addition to that, you've got you you've got within the Ohio Synod, you do have people who agree with Missouri, and some of them do shift. So, one thing that's really interesting about this is that the fallout is in many ways very honest, but I would say that it's not. In a way, it's kind of like Walther has the dilemma that I think on a congregational level, any successful pastor has. On some level, 
the pastor can say all glory goes to God for what has been accomplished here, you know, but there is a degree of the congregations being together that is centered on that man. And there's kind of nothing I think that anyone can do about that. It's why when a pastor leaves or a pastor dies or, or the next pastor comes, there's always going to be difficulty, even if people don't necessarily leave. Although usually some people leave or some people go away and don't come back or, you know, so the interconnection here between personality and the group is, is deep and intense. And so I think it's, I think it's, it's almost impossible after Schmidt publishes something that can galvanize opposition specifically to Walther, right? Because Schmidt doesn't say, Schmidt does in Altus and Neues, he's not saying, okay, well, you know, the, the Iowa Senate agrees with me on election, but I, I have these, these issues with them on these other things. What's interesting is when people split, they, they end up not bringing up stuff that before the split, they actually disagreed on. If they survived a split together, they kind of just forget about or get over stuff that they actually disagreed on. So Schmidt, theoretically, as a member of the Norwegian Synod in communion with Missouri, disagreed with the Ohio Synod on the relationship to Freemasonry. Just a hypothetical. It, nobody brings sure. that up. He just joins. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. in the in the 20th century, when when Buffalo and Iowa and Ohio come together in what becomes the first incarnation of something called the American Lutheran Church, they're not going to bring up, you know, millennialism, even though that's kind of an old (laughs) bugbear of Iowa. They just kind of let it go. And that is significant that once you've learned the lesson of, okay, I got what I wanted in one area and I kind of settled in all the other areas, you can apply that to church mergers and church unions all the way down the line. I think one of the biggest issues with Lutheranism throughout the United States at this time is the fact that you have so much fragmentation of how people talk to each other. And I put it that way because when you when you think about it in terms of language, it just sounds like, you know, oh, this is something that gets worked out in the 20th century as all the different Lutheran churches come to be predominantly and then generally universally English speaking. And I don't think that that's quite the takeaway from what happens, which is that very few of the Eastern Lutherans, either the General Synod or General Council, which are the two Northern bodies, or the United Synod of the South, which is about to suck in the Tennessee Synod, which which we mourn, none of those bodies <laughs> is really involved in this controversy that is definitive for the Midwestern bodies. And part of that you could say, okay, is that's just because of language. This is pretty much all happening. It's And it's very significant that Schmidt publishes a magazine in German, even though he could have done it, he personally could have done it in English or Norwegian or who knows what else he could speak. And that is part of it. But a lot of those Eastern Lutherans actually are fluent in German. C.P. Croth, Theodore Schmack, both at Philadelphia. They, they know German. It's, it's not a deficit. It's not a linguistic deficit that they have. And they're, they're aware of their debate. Croth himself actually writes a little bit about this debate, but it doesn't get published before his, his untimely death. I think a big part of the issue is also that what's happening in the Midwest is so distant functionally on a day-to-day level 
from the issues that are occurring in the East, which are largely about things that the Midwesterners actually don't disagree about. Things like the practice of closed communion, or in many cases within the General Synod, whether or not you're going to have non-Lutherans not just communing, but in the pulpit, how you relate to Freemasonry. The Midwesterners, for their vehement long-standing disagreements on election, generally practice closed communion, pretty much entirely only have other Lutherans in the pulpit, and are fairly universally against the notion that you can be a Freemason and a Christian. So what's interesting is that the disagreement, the disagreements between the Midwesterners are in their own way, uh, practically speaking, on a day-to-day basis, less stark, even though I think that they're very significant. But the Eastern Lutherans are just not being engaged by any of this, and no one's really talking to them in English about it. And so the awareness remains limited really to seminary professors who have opportunity and ability to read these debates that are going back and forth in German. I think that isolation is one of, I think, one of the saddest things for me about the controversy is that American Lutheranism has this really great opportunity nationwide to think about not only what is the doctrine of election, but also how do we do theology and how do we draw theology from the Bible? Do we have to harmonize all the doctrines so they all make sense to us? Can we let the doctrines stand even if they don't answer some of our questions? These are all really great questions, but it's kind of a lost opportunity because it happens in a language most certainly parish pastors in the East are not using on a daily basis. And it happens in a way that does not engage a significant proportion of the church. Hmm. Would you find a parallel between, I mean, it might be a parallel, but how we are so generally disengaged with the debates going on in even other Lutheran church bodies today, because there is this kind of I guess, a cultural gulf, if not a, an ideolo- ideological gulf going on anymore? I mean, do we even care about the major debates going on in, in, say, the ELCA? Do we even care about the major debates going on in Wisconsin? You know, what are they? What do they look like? I mean, I think that that, that bridge still needs to be crossed even today. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's really good. I, I mean, I think a lack of awareness usually results from how big you are. So I would say that Missouri is, is often, although maybe increasingly because we're just drifting so far apart politically and sociologically, historically, Missourians will know what ELCA Lutherans think. ELCA right. Lutherans, depending on their region, will not know what Missourians think or what they're debating. Or if they exist. Right. That's also true. Yeah. I generally find that Wisconsin Synod folks will know about Missouri and and will maybe know about the ELCA, but they'll definitely know about Missouri. And the same goes for ELS people will know about Wisconsin and Missouri. But a lot of Missouri Synod folks, they'll say, I mean, especially where I'm from on the East Coast, they, they don't know what the Wisconsin Synod, they don't know that it exists, let alone what's going on there or what people are arguing about. So that's going to be different. And then not to speak of, hey, what does LCMC stand for? Or how about those free, how about those free Lutherans, you know, mostly in Minnesota, but not entirely? What are they up to? You know, these are these are things that I think uh, ignorance of one another. I don't I don't really know that it serves anybody. It would sort of be it's sort of like being ignorant of church history. You could do it. It's just not really going to help. Sure. No, that's that's a good point. Or the the questions that always crop up about like the Lutheran brethren or 
uh, the the fins around here, the Lestadians. I mean, we have a bunch of those here in North Dakota too. And it's just like, do we even care? <laughs> so, I, I well, guys, we're coming up, point. we're coming up on the end. Of, we're coming up on the end of the uh, end of the episode. Do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? There's definitely more to be explored in terms of election, and and we'll probably be doing that in future episodes. But I think one of the big takeaways is that when you're talking about church history and 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 also trying to draw lessons from it, you want to pay at least as much attention to the people as you do to the topics. The topics can be laid out extremely clearly, but the way that the people handle things and how that impacts the actual well-being of the church as a group of people is kind of a different question and and at least as interesting. And I think we'll find that same lesson in upcoming historical episodes, you know, dealing with church history and these debates that are going on. It really, I mean, we are human beings. We are still going to think emotionally, even when we're trying to be rational and logical. So yes, there is personality drives the history of the church just as, just as much as it drives the history of the world. And so I, I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion. Well, very good. Gentlemen, thank you very much. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. Our fathers taught both that the call of divine grace, owing to its universal sufficiency, enabled not alone the elect, but all the called to be converted and saved. And in the second place, that all the called, and not only the non-elect, can, if they so choose, reject the call of grace without restraint and hindrance, and thus forfeit and lose their soul's salvation. And since God neither saves the former by irresistible grace, nor offers the latter a kind of grace which really is insufficient, therefore the called are confronted by the great choice either to permit their salvation according to the universal order of salvation and by the means prescribed therein, or to reject and frustrate in the free use of their liberty the counsel of salvation, which saving love has conceived. This being so, God in eternity was constrained to see and inquire beforehand what each individual called would do in time and how he would conduct himself in order to preordain in his eternal purpose, according to his foreknowledge, who among the called should be elect. And thus it was that many were called, but few chosen. Friedrich A. Schmidt